Let me give you a few places to turn. Uh, if this were Wednesday night, I would give you at least a dozen, but I'm not going to do that on Sunday morning. Uh, but I'll try to give them to you in some sort of order. So Philippians 4, find something and mark that if you want to. Philippians 4, Luke 4, they're easy to remember. Philippians 4, Luke 4, and then Deuteronomy chapter 8. And then, of course, we'll be in Psalm 71 uh, for the majority of our time. Finally decided after last week I wasn't going to, you know, what we're doing in December, I told you last week, so I wasn't going to spend the rest of this month just trying to figure out from week to week, so I actually came up with a short series that we're going to walk through this Sunday and next Sunday morning, and really it's nothing more than the attitudes of the psalmist, and this morning that I want to talk about uh, the dependence on God that we find in the heart of the psalmist, and then next week we'll look at a different attitude. I trust you've got Philippians 4, Luke 4, Deuteronomy 8, and then Psalm 71. Now, if you have subtitles, and I noticed one of the translations had pretty good subtitles for this particular psalm. It was subtitled, Prayer of an Old Man for Deliverance. And you can kind of pick that up if you'll notice in verse 9. Again, I'm not going to read all this or go through all of this, but you'll notice in verse 9, he says, Do not cast me off. In the time of old age, do not forsake me when my strength fails. And then down in verse 18 again, he says, Even when I am old and gray, O God, do not forsake me. So when you look at this psalm, you realize this is probably not the only psalm that was written from a gray-haired old man, but certainly this was written from a gray-haired old man. So there's a lot of wisdom that's contained in this psalm. And so I would encourage you to spend as much time in it as you, as you can this next week. There, I mean, every passage, there's something that you can pick fruit from and eat it. But I do want you to notice verse 3, because that is the key part of this whole Psalms for me, where he asks the Lord, be to me a rock of habitation to which I may continually come. And let me say this before I get into this, because this is where I want to land, or at least one of the places I want to land. The more gray hair that you have, the more mature that you get in Christ, the more times that you'll find yourself in the presence of the Lord. He will be your continual place to where you go. But I want to talk about dependence, because we certainly see dependence in the life of the psalmist here. And as Christians, we really need to understand the difference between independence and dependence. Now certainly as parents, we understand what dependence looks like because these little children of ours have a tendency to wake us up in the middle of the night just because they're hungry. And when they're really small and they don't wake us up in the middle of the night, what do we do? We wake up in an absolute panic and go run into their room or if y'all were like us, you know, the bassinets right beside the bed, and you just roll over and you put their hand on their chest to make sure they're still beating, or you watch their chest for just a few minutes to make it go up, make sure it's going up and down. 
So you understand this idea of being dependent, and certainly they need to be because they have absolutely no ability to fulfill any of their needs for themselves. They have to cry out to us every single day for every single thing. But it's not too long as parents as our thinking begins to shift and we begin to train these little guys to be just a little more independent in a few things at least. Now certainly we don't want our five-year-old to hop up one day and grab the keys off the dresser and run out to Jack's just because he's hungry. That's not the sort of independence that we want. Unless, I guess some of you guys that got four or five kids, you'd just love for a five-year-old to grab up keys and go get the whole family supper while they're out, right? That'd be absolutely okay. But the problem with this is it won't be long until they come to the place to where they want absolute independence in their life. They'll want to do everything that they want to do, when they want to do it, how they want to do it, and they don't want you interfering in any of that. They don't need your wisdom. They don't need your input. I think that starts around about the age of two and continues through the age of 18, right? What they wind up doing is what the rest of us have all done. They wind up becoming their own Lord over their entire lives. And that's a real problem. Now, we understand very clearly where all this came from. We know the reason for that. I mean, ever since Adam rejected that state of being dependent on God and sought to establish his independence from God, we've all been plunged into the ruin of independence. And that's where we reside. But as born-again believers... We're on a very different trajectory. I hope you find yourself on a different trajectory. I hope you understand that independence from the Lord is no place for a Christian. And so you're working your way back to where you were when you were an infant. You're working your way back to being dependent upon God for everything in life, every matter. In fact, if you wanted to draw a graph, the more mature you become as a Christian, the more dependent you become on the Lord and vice versa. Those graph exactly the same. Now, I don't want you to think that the Lord is passive in these things as well. He shows absolutely no interest in leaving us in our independence, but rather orchestrates our life, whether we want it or not. He orchestrates our life to create a sense of dependence on Him. Just like a good parent will train their children in things that are necessary for life, our Heavenly Father trains us in things that are necessary for life in Christ. But when you look at the wisdom of God, it's absolutely amazing to see how He accomplishes these things. For instance, He wants to give you a desire for joy, and so in order to do that, He often creates sorrow in our life. He wants to create in you a heart for relief or a desire for relief. And times in my life that I've seen him do that, he gave me pain, physical as well as emotional. He wants to give us a desire for righteousness. He wants to create in us a thirst and a hunger for righteousness. And in order to do that, he allows us to live in the context of sin. Oftentimes, or I guess most of the time, our own sin. He wants to give us a desire for His presence, and so He'll grant us loneliness. He wants to give us a desire for peace, and so He allows us to live in unrest, and on and on and on it goes. So when you understand 
how our heavenly parent or father is training us, and you read the scriptures, you see this taking shape all around the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. And I want to give you some examples of that so that you can see how God's orchestrating your life to create in you these desires that He wants to be a part of your life. Number one in the Old Testament, something that really will jump out at all of us is how the Lord created a desire for them to look to God even for their physical needs. He took His people Israel and He sent them off into 430 years of captivity as slaves in the land of Egypt, creating a tremendous desire for a deliverer. They wanted to be set free from slavery and the Lord let them rest 430 years in the midst of that in order for them to understand how desperately they needed a deliverer. That still speaks to us today. He took them from that moment out into what is the perfect schoolhouse of God. He took them out into the desert to train them in a number of things in which He wanted them to look to Him to be their provider. Take the first, for instance, He gave them a great thirst and then met that thirst by giving them water from a rock. Super bizarre way to do that. He gave them a tremendous hunger and then He met that hunger by giving them bread from heaven. And when you think about those two truths, you do understand that there were an infinite number of ways the Lord could have provided bread and water for them. And I was thinking about that, and the one that came to mind that's probably the second most unusual thing is found in 1 Kings 17. If you have time, read the whole chapter this week. But it's the story of Elijah, the prophet of God, when God decided that he was going to send neither rain nor dew on the land for a number of years. And so he told Elijah to go down by the brook and he would command a raven to bring him uh, bread and meat every day. And so the prophet goes down by the brook. He's able to drink water from the stream. Every morning, the Bible says, a raven brought bread and meat. Kind of sounds like a sausage biscuit from Hardy's to me. Every morning he did that. And every evening, the raven brought bread and meat to Elijah the prophet down by the brook. And he was able to drink water and eat bread and meat that was brought to him by a bird. The Lord could have done that any way that he wanted. And you remember the rest of the story because when the brook dried up, you remember where he sent Elijah. Go to the widow's house, right? He said, I have commanded the bowl of flour and the jar of oil not to be exhausted. And so he went down to the widow Zarephath and she was about to make the last meal for her son and die. And, and so Elijah tells her what the Lord has done and out of faith, in fact, so much faith, when Jesus preached His first sermon, He talked about this widow. So she fixed that last meal and she gave Elijah the first piece of bread. He ate it and that jar of flour, and that, and that, or bowl of flour and that jar of oil never ran dry until the Lord sent rain. He can feed and He can provide drink for His people any way that He chooses, but He chose to give them water from a rock and bread from heaven so that they would understand it will be me who provides for you. In fact, I think I gave you this passage, but you don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. It's in Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. And you remember that Deuteronomy is a series of sermons that Moses is preaching before he goes up on the mountain to enter into the presence of eternity and with the Lord. 
And when he's preaching in Deuteronomy 8 too, this is what he says to the children of Israel. He says, You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness for 40 years. In other words, Moses says there's a particular way he did that. And then he describes that in verse 3. He said, He humbled you. He let you go hungry. He fed you with manna which you did not know, nor your fathers, that He might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of where? The mouth of the Lord. I mean, He took them to the schoolhouse for 40 years to teach them, you will look to me for everything. I don't care if it's water. You're going to look to me for your water, and I will give you water out of a rock. But it wasn't just physical things that the Lord was wanting them to look to Him and trust in Him for. It was also spiritual things. And the most extraordinary thing that the the Lord did for His people to create a desire for spiritual truth was to give them the law. By giving them the law, they should have read the law and felt within themselves a tremendous desire for righteousness. Because the law was good and righteous, and we'll find that out in Romans. But they couldn't keep the law. They could do it externally, but they couldn't do it internally. And they should have noticed that there's something wrong with my heart. And they should have had a tremendous desire, and a handful of them did, not many. They should have had a tremendous desire for spiritual things and for righteousness when they tried to keep the law. And again, some of them did. And the purpose of the law was fulfilled. But most of them... They never recognized their need for righteousness. Therefore, they had no need for a Savior. So that's the Old Testament. God was constantly training and teaching His people just like any parent would do. Physical things, right here. Look to the Lord. Spiritual things, I want you to look up. And I want you to look to me for absolutely everything. So when we walk into the New Testament, it's even more so. Now that we know more, we need to be able to understand that we can be more dependent on the Lord for more things. He told them all things, but surely you and I can understand it is absolutely all things that we need to look to the Lord for. I don't care if it's your next meal. I don't care if it's your next drink of water or if it's your next desire to want to overcome a particular sin in your heart and in your life. We look to the Lord for all things. I was so thankful last night. I was telling Bobby before church, my son showed up Friday, kicked his shoes off just for a little while, went to bed, got up the next morning, put his shoes back on, and drove to North Carolina to go spend time with Emily. Five-hour drive. And yeah, I was watching him on the app the whole time because there's a lot of traffic this time of year, especially going through Knoxville, right? Well, I watched, and I saw him pulling into the driveway, so I sat down and ate supper, and then my phone immediately rang. It was Emily's dad. And he said, hey, brother, I just wanted to rejoice with you because you've been praying for five hours, and I've been praying for five hours that the Lord would see that boy safely here. And he just pulled in my driveway, and he said, I just wanted to praise the Lord with you. And I thought, how thankful I am that he knows that truth, that we look to the Lord for all things especially an 18-year-old boy driving five hours on the road, right? But we really trust in the Lord for all things. 
And being New Testament Christians, we really need to understand that truth. We've got the example, and I did ask you, and I want you to see this. So go with me to Luke chapter 4. Because it was the Lord Himself that laid down the example for us in how we ought to walk in absolute, utter dependence upon God. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus is going to the schoolhouse of the Father. If you remember in 4.1, it was the Holy Spirit that led the Lord Jesus out into the wilderness. And if you'll notice with me in verse 2. It says, For forty days, being tempted by the devil, Jesus ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, He became hungry. I would imagine starving to death. The devil said to Him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered Him, It stands written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. You know, God tried to teach that to His people for 40 years, and they didn't get it. They never got it. Jesus walks out into the desert, and for 40 days He does without food. And the moment that He's presented with the opportunity to eat, He's like, no thank you. I understand the truth of God. And man doesn't live by bread. Man lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of my Father. And he waited and he trusted on the Father. And it was the angels who ministered to him. You see, we have a greater picture. We've seen someone live in the reality of this particular truth. We've seen someone walk in absolute dependence on the Father. And if you go, well, that's Jesus, well, then you're missing what He was doing for us. He was doing a lot for us, but He was certainly doing that for us because the same instruction comes to the church. Turn with me to Philippians 4 now, and I want you to see Paul's instruction to the church regarding this matter. It's exactly the same. Philippians 4, and I want to start in verse 10. Again, if this was Wednesday night, I'd outline the whole book for you. This is one of my favorite books. But it will do us some good to hear this word of instruction from the Apostle Paul to the church. Paul says in Philippians 4.10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. So let me explain to you what happens before we go into verse 11. The church at Philippi was one of the only churches the Apostle Paul would take money from. Boy, he's a far cry from missionaries and preachers today. He would only allow the church at Philippi, or they were one of the very few, that Paul would actually receive money from because he felt like they were mature enough to understand what was going on. And so they wanted to give him a gift, but they didn't have opportunity. And if you read chapter 3, I think it was Epaphroditus who finally had opportunity to get out of Philippi and take money to the Apostle Paul. In fact, he almost died on that trip. But he finally got money to the Apostle Paul, and now Paul wants to teach them about physical things in respect to being the children of God. Look at verse 11. He's gotten the gift, but look what he says. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret 
of being filled and going hungry, both of having an abundance and suffering needs. And then he says one of the most misunderstood passages in the whole of Scripture, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. In other words, Paul says, I appreciate the gift, but you need to understand I'm absolutely content. I mean, if I'm hungry, I'm content. If I need clothes and I don't have them, I'm content. But if somebody brings me six suits and all kinds of gift cards to eat at Cracker Barrel every day, I'm still content because I don't draw my strength and significance from these particular things. I draw it from the Lord. In fact, he goes on to say, when it looks like I'm in want, you need to know I don't walk about in weakness. When I'm hungry, I'm not in weakness, but rather I'm in strength because I can walk in the strength of the Lord. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. It's not about human beings having a supernatural ability to win a football game. It's about us being in deep need for something and we are going to be patient and wait on God to provide that need. And God says, if you're going to wait on me and look to me, I'm going to strengthen you until I provide for you. That's what that passage is about. And then if you look in verse 19, here comes the instruction to the church. And my God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus That's the very nice way that Paul was trying to instruct the church. I know you've given. I appreciate the gift. But listen, I want you to come to the place where you trust the Lord for everything. Even if you don't have anything. Because He takes care of His people. And I bet you if I gave you time to go around the room, a great many of you would give me testimony to the fact of how God has provided you supernaturally when you really had need. But you know, it's not just physical things. It's also the spiritual things that the Lord provides for us. And these have absolutely been fulfilled. And we can gloriously and thankfully look to God for everything. Remember Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We've talked about this. You have great need for repentance. Nathan's been teaching us on Sunday nights. Where does the gift of repentance come from? It comes from the Lord. We have great need of forgiveness of sin. Who is the one that extends to us the forgiveness of sin? It's the Lord. We have absolute need for faith and faith alone by which you can be saved. And that's the only way that you can be saved. Where am I going to get this faith? We need to understand we don't all carry that in our back pocket like a Visa card and we're just waiting to pop it out and make that purchase when we want salvation. It doesn't work that way. Everything that you need comes from the hand of God. Even faith itself. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places comes from our Father. Every physical blessing, every spiritual blessing. Now, the psalmist These particular men really understood these truths. They knew how to look to the Lord for everything. It didn't matter if it was physical or spiritual. There's a number of places where the psalmist looks to the Lord because he is in sin. And if you think about that, the only way that we can can even do that is because the Lord has given us understanding to do that because He's the one that we've sinned against. 
It's like running to a lion for safety. Because the only way that you can survive being eaten to death if you run to Him and He actually winds up being your deliverer and doesn't consume you in your way. So the psalmist knew that they had rebelled against God and it was the wrath of God that was going to be poured out on them, yet they ran to God seeking the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God. And I kind of get frustrated because we're all familiar with Psalms 51. In fact, the title of Psalms 51 talks about, it's titled, When Nathan the prophet came to David over his sin with Bathsheba. So we understand Psalms 51 is about Bathsheba. But what frustrates me, every other psalm that you read where David's confessing sin, if you pick up a commentary, you'll say, oh, he's talking about Bathsheba. Do you really think David only sinned once? Do you really think David didn't understand sin? I think David understood very well about sin. In fact, he wrote in Psalms 51, I was born in sin. Right? And so listen to his words in Psalms 38. David writes this, My iniquities are gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. I am ready to fall. My sorrow is continually before me, for I confess my iniquity. I am full of anxiety because of my sin. See, he had great spiritual need, and he knew exactly where to go. And he concludes that psalm in verse 21 with this, Do not forsake me, O Lord my God, do not be far away. You know where to go in your sin? Because there's only one that you can go to that can help you. I know it's obvious that we'd run to the Lord about sin, but do we run to the Lord concerning our enemies? The psalmist in Psalms 55 does this. Psalm 55, he writes this, As for me, I shall call upon the Lord, and He will save me. Listen to this. Evening, morning, and noon, I will call to Him. He didn't just get up in the morning. He didn't spend five minutes on his knees and then go running off to work and just forget the whole deal. He understood the need in his life and he says, listen, evening, morning, noon, I've been pouring out my heart to God. He said, He will redeem my soul in peace from the battle which is against me, for there are many who strive with me. What do we do when we have somebody striving with us? Surely you guys don't play this reel in your mind, something similar to what I was talking about last week, of how you're going to get them back or how you're going to repay them or what you're going to say to them to really stick it to them. Surely y'all don't wrestle with those sort of things. But evidently this psalmist in some way may have been because he understood when he was striving with somebody, it's time for me to sit down and talk with the Lord. And Psalms 55 is unique because it's not an enemy he did not know. It was his friend. In Psalms 55 he writes this, It's not an enemy who approaches or reproaches me. If it were, I could bear it. No, it's, it's the one who hates me, the one who has exalted himself above me or against me. He is my equal. He is my companion. He is my friend. We have enjoyed sweet fellowship together. Y'all ever gotten sideways with a friend? Man, we just, we just come apart when that happens. Because you're just so close and we just love him so much and we've just gotten so sideways. The psalmist was like, calm down. Evening, morning, and noon. Go sit down with the Lord. You turn this over to Him and you 
trust Him in these things and you wait on Him to reconcile this situation. That's why I'm telling you, read this psalm. It's everywhere. And God is teaching these psalmists to be dependent upon Him so they're walking through difficult days. The one that you definitely, without question, need to spend time with is Psalms 46. it's, It's the most general. This is how Psalms 46, 1 begins. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And you know what? He never defines the trouble. You have no idea what it is. He just simply left it as trouble. Now he does tell you how bad it is because in verse 2 he says this, Therefore we will not fear though the earth should change, though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. In other words, it's all coming apart. And he simply defined it as trouble. And the one that he went to in the midst of whatever trouble that was, was to the Lord. And he rested right there. In fact, I think that you've got a verse memorized out of Psalms 46 in the midst of all this trouble. Because the Lord was teaching this particular psalmist this truth that we need to hear today. In the midst of trouble, this is what the psalmist, the conclusion that he comes to. Be still and know what? Be still and know that I am God. Now let me ask you this. Can you do that? Or do you need more training? Personally, I can tell you, I need a lot more training. But I will also tell you this, the Lord loves you enough to give you trouble so you'll understand that you need to be still. That you need to settle your heart. That you need to stop planning and contriving and calling and shaking the trees and trying to figure this thing out on your own. You need to be still in the presence of God and pray and wait. Because He wants to prove to you that He is your deliverer. So let me conclude with just a Psalm 71 and then one other passage. So go back with me there. How in the world can we learn to be this kind of dependence or develop this kind of dependence rather in the Lord? Well, there's an attitude that they have to adopt first. And that attitude is from this gray-haired old man in Psalm 71. Verse 1, let me read it to you again down through verse 3. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of habitation to which I may continually come. This word habitation, it's used in a couple of different ways in the Old Testament. But the majority of the time, it's the holy habitation of God. And that's the context that he's talking about here. In other words, he's saying, be to me that place 
that I can go to in the midst of trouble where you are. Be to me in that place and I will come continually. Now, I know I mention this quite often, but it's just the truth of your lives. You guys are way too busy. You're trying to do way too much. And I know you're trying to do way too much because you don't have time to continually spend time with the Lord. And we use a lot of excuses, don't we? But like Miss Burma said, one's as good as another. You can simply say, I didn't have time because mustard's yellow. Really don't matter, it's just an excuse. Mature in your Christian faith and find yourself continually with the Lord. And you will begin to develop these things in your life that the Lord is going to allow to come your way because He's going to make you into who He wants you to be. He's going to form in you the character of His very Son. And it's a painful process. Listen, I seriously doubt anyone in this room is more stubborn than I am. And He's done physical things. He's done emotional things. And they have hurt simply because I was too stubborn to allow the Lord to gently do the things necessary in my life. He dropped a plow deep in my heart at times. Because he's trying to teach me the truth that you will continually sit before me, son. Even if I have to do a lot of damage, this is where I'm going to find you. And he'll do the same in your life. And he does it, Hebrews 12, because you're his son. And we don't let our sons run around like fools. If you let your son run around like a fool, you're a fool. And you're no fit to be a father. But our Heavenly Father, He's absolutely none of that. And He will train us to sit quietly before Him and grow to the point that we trust Him. Second thing, and the last thing that I want to show you is not the attitude, but the actual action, right? So run with me the last place. I didn't give you this, but go with me to 1 Peter. And if you're tired of turning places, you'll just sit and listen. But I want you to see 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. This is one of those verses, if we were on Wednesday night, I'd draw all kinds of circles and lines and ask you a whole lot of hard questions. But I want to close with this particular passage and then we will we'll pray. This, if you will, is the instruction to the church, just like we did a few moments ago. We see the, the attitude in the psalmist, but we hear the instruction to the church in the New Testament. 1 Peter 5, and I'm going to read verses 6 and 7. Therefore, Peter writes, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. And then Peter writes this, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Now you do realize, I could have given you Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything... There's dozens and dozens and dozens of passages that speak to this truth. But I found myself spending more time in verse 7 than anything else, and I kind of got frustrated with the way that it was translated because we've talked about this before. In the Greek, the emphatic word comes first. In other words, rather than saying we will have victory, the Greek would write down victory, 
we will have because he wants you to see victory is the emphatic word. Now looking at verse 7, what, what word would you guess would be the one in the emphatic position? What word is most important to Peter? And you go, oh, it's what? Anxiety. Anxiety has got to be first, right? Because that's what he's talking about. No. The first word is all. The first thing that he wants you to see is all. And rather than anxiety, I think it's better translated, all the concerns of yours. Meaning this, what are you going to choose not to pray for tomorrow? What are you going to choose not to trust the Lord with tomorrow? Because according to the Word of God, there's nothing on God's list that He doesn't want you to trust Him with. He doesn't say, well, you know, I realize that some of you moms are going to get up and you're going to homeschool your kids in the morning. I realize you've made lesson plans and you've got babysitting, you've got all this organized. I realize that. So are you going to, you're going to walk in all those things and go about that business without getting up a little bit early and calling out to me and begging me? And entrusting me with that day? I know, guys, you go to work every morning and you do your thing and you put on your tool belt and you go to work and you've been doing it for years. You know exactly how to do it. Are you going to do that in the morning without calling out to the Lord and begging Him to teach you and train you in His ways? You see, the emphatic word is the word all because God says, I want it all. I don't care if it's physical or spiritual. I want all the concerns of yours. And then he uses this word cast, which is the word that we'd use with a fishing rod or maybe a rock slinging across a pond. He says, actually, I want you to throw all of them upon upon me. And here's the reason. Because I care for you. Now, let me give you an illustration. Can you imagine your six-month-old if they could somehow verbalize? And went to the kitchen and pulled open the refrigerator and just starts pulling everything out, making a mess. And you could actually ask him, what are you doing? Well, I'm trying to feed myself. And you're like, when have I failed to feed you? When have I let you go hungry? Right? You pick the child up, you'd fix him something to eat, and you'd, being that old, you have to feed them. The father's like, when have I failed you? When have I failed to feed you? When have I failed to provide for you? Why in the world don't I have all of your concern? Why haven't you questioned me and called out to me for everything physical and spiritual in your life? Where am I failing you as a father? He says, listen, I care for you. And I want to provide everything for you. But you're going to have to trust me. Church, We've got to grow up and stop being so independent because your independence does not glorify God. What glorifies God is our utter and absolute dependence upon Him for everything. Let's pray.